the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And what Mark is going to do for the next 16 chapters after verse 11 is he's going to parade before us different people who interacted with Jesus. Turn me down just a little bit. I got a little, little echo coming down there. He's going to parade before us different people uh, who, who, who try to answer the question, who is Jesus? Who is Mark? Who is Jesus? Um, his, his number one person that he will parade before his readers are his disciples who just don't seem to get it. Now take heart. These are, the, these are the fathers of the church. These are the apostles, which the scriptures will tell us that the church is built upon the word of the apostles. But these fools didn't get it for three years. So take heart, young person, young person struggling in their faith. He'll also parade before his readers the Pharisees, who, who cannot believe that Jesus is saying the things that he's saying. So let me just give you very quickly what we've covered in Mark so far. Chapters 1 and 2, he shows us Jesus beginning his ministry by his call of the fishermen and his authority over the demons and diseases. He also begins having these little controversies with the religious leaders of his day and is rejected by the Pharisees. In chapters 3 and 5, he begins parables of the character of God and he shows again more miracles, building upon what he started in chapters 1 and 2, demonstrating that this is indeed God in the flesh. Then in chapter 6 through near to the end of chapter 8, we see the ministry of Jesus begin to go further than Galilee where he has been so far. He sends forth the twelve, and he begins to teach the disciples who he is. And right at the end of this section, that's uh, halfway near, near the end of Mark chapter 8, we get the turning point in the whole gospel with the confession of, Pete, confession of Peter. And he, Jesus, asked them, who do you say that I am? This is the question of the gospel of Mark. Who do you say that Jesus is? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ." In verse 30, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Then throughout the rest of chapter 8 and through the end of chapter 10, which is where we were in the spring, we have the great discipleship section in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus begins to make his way to Jerusalem. In this section, he gives three separate predictions of what's to come, of his death that will happen. And he teaches disciples what it means to be a true follower of Christ, what it means to be a Christian. And this brings us to the start of our section of the day, Mark chapter 11. Look at it with me. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them that what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father God, we pray, Lord, as we uh, dig into 
uh, this opening section of Mark chapter 11, Father Lord, that you would give us an understanding. You would peel back uh, the layers of darkness and confusion. But we would look at this historic, glorious, life-changing moment in the scriptures, Father, that we would be changed by what we see. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, if you had a timeline, and you were to take Mark chapter 1 through Mark chapter 16, and you stretch it out on a timeline you would find that the first 10 chapters covering the beginning to almost the end of Jesus' entire ministry. Scholars estimate it's about the span of three years. You'd find that the first 10 chapters take up the majority of that timeline. But you would also find that the last six chapters of the Gospel of Mark cover the span of about one week. It's very important that we understand this because it is massive implications on how we approach the gospel. And if we're not careful, we will miss what Mark's trying to tell us here. Like, if you've ever wondered, why do Christians seem to talk more about the death and resurrection of Christ than, say, his miracles? Or him healing the blind? Or him raising the dead? It's because of this right here. You see, Mark gives us a hyperspeed journey through three years, nearly three years of Jesus' earthly ministry before shifting the video into slow-mo. Why do you think that is? Mark does this so that we don't miss the main point. Right? So if I can put it in perspective for you, if, if the last six chapters were at the speed at which the first ten chapters are, Mark would have to summarize six chapters in about three verses. He's stretching it out. He's slowing it down. He does this because the first ten chapters serve as a very quick summary and grounding into the life and into the ministry of Jesus so that we would be prepared for the main reason for which he is writing in the first place. See, the book of Genesis does something similar. The first three chapters uh, are about the creation of the world, the creation of man and their fall into sin. Not quite sure how long that takes in the span of history. But then the next chapters, 4 to 11, it covers the span of a couple hundred years. Then in chapter 12, it slows way down as the author focuses in on Abram, who will become Abraham, through the next 30-some chapters, tracing merely three or four generations. So Mark is intentionally slowing the story down here so that it will come into focus. Right? Have you ever drove somewhere new, right? And maybe you've got some highway miles and you're just kind of, you're rolling along 65, 85. I don't know how fast you drive, but you're, you're driving there. You've got the, the music blaring. And then all of a sudden, the, the GPS says, turn left in this neighborhood and you have to slow way down. Now, if you're my wife, what you also do is you turn down the music to help you focus. So what Mark is doing here is he's, he's turning down the music because we're coming into our final destination. That's what Mark's doing here. He doesn't want you to miss the house number because you're going too fast. And so Mark chapters 11 through 16 record the final week of, uh, of our Lord's earthly life. Mark devotes more than one-third of his gospel to this passion week, right? Some have referred to Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with an extended introduction. This will be a busy week, culminating in Christ's death on the cross 
and his glorious resurrection. And so the week begins here with Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem during the Passover. Traditionally, the church history has called this the triumphant entry. This is an unambiguous declaration of who it is that is entering the city. This event is so important to the narrative of the Gospels that it's actually included in all four Gospel accounts. Matthew 21, here in Mark chapter 11, Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12. With his arrival, there is no turning back. The die is cast. The Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world will now be slain in space and time. The atonement for sin ordained in eternity past now becomes historical for all of us to behold. Jerusalem would be abuzz with activity. It's said that during Passover, the population could swell to nearly three times its normal size as pilgrims enter in from all over the world. However, this Passover will be unlike any other Passover had ever been or would ever come again. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Let's look at the text here. Look at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And we'll send it back here. Immediately here we see Jesus, who is always in control. Jesus and the disciples, as they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Bethany, of course, being the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, whom Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. And it will be the place where Jesus will stay during the final week of his life. Our Lord then sent two unnamed disciples to a local village, telling them that as they entered, they would find this, this colt, this donkey tied up, to which no one had ever sat before. It's amazing. Jesus just knew this about this colt, knew where it was, told his disciples where to go. What, what, what's going on here, you might ask? Why, why, does, why does Mark include this? Why, do, why does the other gospel accounts include this? this? This fact that the donkey, the colt, had never been ridden before. What, what is this doing for us? You see, this is an echo back to the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which needed an unyoked carrier. This, this Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was to be uh, burred by or carried on by something that was unyoked. And so the true Ark of the Covenant, the Lord Christ, required an unridden animal. You see, as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the holy place, into Jerusalem, so now the Holy One is entering into Jerusalem. Jesus has planned everything out to the last detail. He's in complete control here. The moment he enters Jerusalem, the prerogatives of his deity are present. You see, Jesus is Lord and Master over every single detail of his divine destiny. Sinclair Ferguson says this, he says this, his majesty and authority began to shine from the moment of his entry into Jerusalem. This is a marked shift from the rest of the gospel account where Jesus has commanded his disciples, tell no one uh, what you've said here. So he said to Peter, this great confession, right? He tells the demons not to, to mention who he is. All of that changes here. 
But notice their location. They're, they're coming in from the Mount of Olives. This rises about 200 feet higher than Mount Zion. Its crest is less than a mile directly east of Jerusalem. And it's called the Mount of Olives because, you guessed it, all of its many olive trees. Its slopes were the path of David's retreat from Jerusalem to escape capture from his son Absalom. It was on this mount that Solomon grieved God by erecting idols for his foreign wives to worship. It was here that Ezekiel witnessed the glory of God on the Mount of Olives. And it was here that Jesus, the son of David, makes his royal entry into Jerusalem. On this mount, Jesus wept over the disobedience and blindness of Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19. The disciples witnessed Jesus' ascension, this is important, into glory from this very spot. And Acts chapter 1, verse 10 and 11 tells us that he would come again in the same way that he had watched, they had watched him go. And Zechariah 14 tells us what will happen when those holy feet touch down again on the Mount of Olives. It says, Zechariah says this, he says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azul, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come, and all the holy ones with him. You see, Jesus Christ is in control from beginning to end. But not only that, notice that he submits to the word of God here. Look at verse 4. And they went away, found a colt tied to a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. These two disciples went and found things just as Jesus had said. This wasn't the first time the disciples had to do something like this. Like, you remember the time when Peter is asking Jesus, he said, should we pay our taxes? Uh, and what does Jesus do? He sends them to a fish that has coin in its mouth. And they brought the colt to Jesus. They threw their cloaks on it. And Jesus sat on it to ride into Jerusalem. You might think, okay, what's the... What's the important thing here, Pastor? It's, it's what's happening between the lines. You see, Jesus has walked everywhere else in his earthly ministry throughout Israel, except on the occasion when he was riding in a boat. This is the one and only time in all of Holy Scripture where we see Jesus riding on an animal, a small donkey. You say, okay, well, what does that mean? This is, this is highly symbolic in light of Old Testament prophecy, expectations, and illusions, right? Look at the phrase, uh, the Lord needs it, in, chapter, in verse 3. This is the same phrase used of David eating the sacred bread from Mark chapter 2, verse 25. And as David had need uh, for him and his men to eat the bread of the temple, so now the Lord has needs. You see, this is uh, a greater son of David here. His riding in on a donkey is also a declaration of his kingship and a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, Matthew 21, 4 and 5, and John 12, 14 and 15 make this clear. Mark doesn't hear. He assumes that you'll pick up on it. 
This is a fulfillment of prophecy. As is often with the case with Old Testament prophecy, there's not a clear distinction between our Lord's first coming and His second coming. Surely this would have been in the minds of those watching all of the unfold. I'm not going to make you turn there, but I just want you to listen to Zechariah. Here's what he says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. You see, our Lord lived his entire life from beginning to end in total submission to the word of God. You see, his life, his death, his resurrection were the unfolding drama of redemption. No wonder he would say in John 5, 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think in, you, in them you have eternal life, yet they testify about me. What Zechariah was seeing when he was writing these words was Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Like, this is the Jesus who submits to the word of God. Have you ever thought about the list of people who are the head or the foundation of all the major world religions? Have you ever thought about this list of people? It's a very short list. 10 to 15 people, tops maybe. People like Jesus Christ, people like Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha. These are the names of people who have started great uh, great as in the sense of large um, world religions that are still in practice today. It's a very small list. And then there's another list of people um, on which the people actually claim to be God. Right? So Jesus, of course, is on this list as well. But then you have other folks. People like the guy who headed up the group in Waco. Other, like, and these, these, lists, these, these lists of people, they, they pretty much die out within a generation. Why? Because these people die and then no one ever hears from them again. So people move on, right? So it's a list filled as much longer than the first list of, of people who actually claim to be God in the flesh. And yet, there's one man who stands on both lists. That's Jesus the Christ. Like, like have, you, have, you, have you thought about this? What if you went home today and you told your spouse, your, your, your husband or your wife, and you said, the Lord spoke to me today and that I am actually God. Like, think about it. Like, what would your spouse say about you? It's like, oh, honey, you've lost your mind. We need to get you checked into uh, some kind of facility with padded walls. And yet Jesus, when he claims to be God, no one thought this guy lost his mind. 
You see, the reason why your spouse would tell you that you've lost your mind is because they, they know you. <laughs> they know all your shortcomings. They know you're an idiot. Like, they, like they get it. They see the side of you, which none of us, none of us, like, you might be able to fool, like, one or two of your friends who, who, who don't really know you, but not your spouse. Your spouse will quickly check you in into a rehab facility. And yet, when Jesus would stand up and say, I am God in the flesh, people are like, maybe it's true. Like, maybe it's true. Why? Because they looked at his life, perfect submission to the word of God. Not only that, he, he embodies humility. Look at verse 7 here. They brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And so Jesus mounts this young colt and begins the parade into Jerusalem. Here is deity on a donkey. The prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 makes beautifully clear the connection to his riding on a donkey and his humility. Notice this was a, a donkey which has never been ridden. An unbroken donkey, and yet Christ had no need to break it in because this donkey knew its creator. It knew its master. Yes, he is bringing righteousness and salvation, and yes, he comes humble and mounted on a donkey. In response, the, the people spread their robes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. You see, this was a time of festivity. This was a time of celebration as they welcomed his kingship. Coming in this way, our Lord now proclaims openly what he has forbidden until this moment. I am your king. Jesus, with purpose and intentionality, presents himself as the Messiah, knowing that it will provoke the Jewish leaders, resulting in his crucifixion. Nevertheless, his declaration also is bathed in gracious humility. Like, think about it for a moment. There is no bigger difference between Muslims and Christians more sharply contrasted than in the difference between the characters and legacies of their prophets. Perhaps the contrast is best symbolized by the way Muhammad entered Mecca and the way Jesus entered Jerusalem. You see, Muhammad rode into Mecca on a war horse, surrounded by 400 mountain men and 10,000 foot soldiers. Those who greeted him with welcome arms were absorbed into his movement, and yet those who resisted him were vanquished, killed, or enslaved. Muhammad conquered Mecca, took control as its new religious and political and military leader. Today in Istanbul, Turkey, Muhammad's purported sword is proudly on display compared with Jesus, who entered Jerusalem on a donkey accompanied by 12 guys who just don't have it figured out yet. He was welcomed and greeted by people waving palm leaves, a traditional sign of peace. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem because the Jews mistook him for an earthly, secular king who was to free them from the, rope, from the yoke of Rome, whereas Jesus had come to establish a much different heavenly kingdom. You see, Jesus came by invitation and not by force. This is paradoxical kingship. And Jesus here shines bright. He is royalty 
and deity wrapped in a single person, yet he moves forward in the declaration of his kingship, of who he is in lowliness, weakness, and service. He does not come in pomp, but in meekness and lowliness. He comes in humility and simplicity. Sinclair Ferguson captures this moment by saying this, think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first. The Christians in Rome, no doubt, many of them had seen generals enter Rome and triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet, we know that his kingdom was established. While the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that what Jesus did in Jerusalem established a kingdom which would outcast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which it sets itself against it. Jesus had come to take his throne. But had committed himself to begin by first taking his cross. Now look at verse 9. You see, what, what, Jesus, what, what Mark is doing in his gospel account is parading before his readers uh, people who, who, who get it and then a lot of people who don't. And one of the main characters of the gospel of Mark is this unnamed crowd, the throng of people. They show up in almost every story. And, and, and sometimes they're there to praise them, sometimes they're there to kill them. But look at the crowd in this instant, this unnamed crowd. And those who went before, verse 9, and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. This is fascinating stuff. Because their words could not be truer. But they could not have more misunderstood what Jesus was actually there to do. Only Jesus knew at the time the full significance of what they were saying. You see, Hosanna means literally, save, I pray. It draws from Psalm 118, which says, Lord, save us. Lord, please grant us success. He who comes in the name of the Lord is blessed. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. You see, Passover celebrated the Hebrew people's deliverance out of Egypt. And now the nation of Israel anticipates a messianic liberation and deliverance from Rome. Blessed draws from Numbers chapter 6, which says, May Yahweh bless you and protect you. May Yahweh make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh look with favor on you and give you peace. In this way I'll pronounce my name over the Israelites and I will bless them. You see, the one who is blessed who will be the blesser is number one, he who comes in the name of the Lord. And number two, he who is bringing the coming kingdom of David. You see, what's happening in this moment is there's a slew of Old Testament prophecies that are right now coming to fulfillment. Texts like this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12-16. When your days are fulfilled... And you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me 
a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. The only issue with that is that this is God talking to David. And what happened to David? He died. The kingship of David ended. And yet God just said, your throne shall be established forever. So what's happening? Jesus, the son of David, is at this moment establishing that kingdom. Isaiah chapter 9 is also being fulfilled here. It says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. David's throne is being established as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. Isaiah 11, 1 through 10 is being fulfilled here. Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 8 is being fulfilled here. Ezekiel, which I'll read this one, 34, uh, 23 through 24 is being fulfilled here. It says this, I will set up them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. Micah chapter 5 verses 2 and 4 is being fulfilled here. What we're seeing in all of these prophecies, the Old Testament prophets and writers and readers were all trying to wonder, how will God do this? They believed that he would. They had hoped and believed it to be true, and they were right yet not in the way that they thought. You see, Jesus is their king, but he is not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. No, he is here to purge his people of their sin. They are looking and longing for a temporal, political, and military savior. He, however, is bringing what only he can bring, a complete and eternal salvation of body and soul. They want and expect a Savior only for Jews, but He is a Savior for the whole world and for any and all who will believe on His name. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive Him, He gave the right to become children 
of God to those who believe in his name. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 14.6 says it so well. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says it so well. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven uh, given to people where we must be saved. 1 Timothy 2.5 says it so well, for there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, Jesus Christ. You see, Christ's salvation and triumph would be the victory not of what they thought of a Roman oppression, but over life over death, salvation over sin, truth over error, love over hate, forgiveness over condemnation. They cried out for salvation that day. I wonder if you cried out to him to save you. For you see, he's the only one who can. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem, went to the temple, We looked around at everything. As it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Day ends rather uneventful. However, tomorrow, verses 12 to 25, Jesus enters Jerusalem, goes to the temple, looks things over again. I think it's much more interesting. But tonight, he, he enters Jerusalem, goes to the temple, looks things over, sees that it's late, and leaves, the, leaves with the disciples for Bethany. You see, I wonder if in Jesus' mind, he returned to the first time he saw the temple as a 12-year-old boy. Luke 2 tells you about that. He must have been impressed at that young and tender age, but not anymore. Not knowing what he knows now and what will transpire over the coming days and the years and the centuries to pass, Jesus does not come to the temple as a tourist or as a gawking pilgrim caught up in the fanfare of Passover and enamored by the spectacular beauty of the temple. No, he makes a commanding survey of the situation and he goes away to return the next day. The next day he will curse something. He'll curse the temple. It should have been bringing the nations to God, but in reality was driving them away. He would seem that this would, <clears throat> it would seem that this would have been the moment for him to claim and receive his messianic throne and kingdom. Finally, the Savior has arrived. Finally, the Messiah. Finally, it's time for him to set up this world kingdom. But amazingly, at the end of the day, nothing happens. As a matter of fact, you'll notice that Mark no longer mentions the crowds here. This enthusiastic crowds have mysteriously vanished. Was Jesus only king for a day? Jesus, with no fanfare whatsoever, leaves the temple with the twelve. But there is a a text, I think, in Mark's mind here, lingering. He cites it at the beginning of his gospel. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says this, See, I am going to send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you desire, see, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like cleansing lye. The refining fire has arrived. It's arrived to purify, to cast out what is unclean. The cleansing has arrived to cleanse that which is filthy. He will start his work with the temple, and he will finish his work on the cross. This is our king. 
You see, our king has come. And our king is coming again. Notice the difference here between the first advent and the second advent. In the first, he came to die. In the second, he will come to reign. In the first, he came on a little donkey. In the latter, he will come on a warrior horse. He came the first time as a humble servant. He will come the last time as an exalted king. The first time he came in weakness, the last time he will come in power. The first time he came to save, but the second time he will come to judge. He began by coming in love. He will end by coming in wrath. He first came as deity veiled. veiled. He will come as deity revealed. He came with 12 disciples the first time. The last time he will come with an army of angels. He came the first time to bring peace but he will come and make war in the final time. He was given a crown of thorns in the beginning, but in the end he will be given a crown of royalty. He came as a suffering servant the first time, but the last time he will come as the king of kings and lord of lords. You see, the crowds mysteriously vanish here. Few actually bowed before the great king the first time he came. However, at the end of history, every knee will bow when he comes again. I wonder, where are you? Are you currently bowing your knee to Christ? Are you currently crying out with the crowds, Hosanna, but then throughout the rest of the week, you've forgotten your Savior? I wonder, are you looking for him to come again? Are you waiting? Are you ready? Father God, Thank you for today. Lord, as we reflect on this shift in Mark's gospel this morning, a shift from wondering who you are to now being told and shown that you are are the king. You have come. You've come to not save from worldly oppression not come to save us from suffering. You've not come to save us uh, to anything else except to save us to yourself and from the sin which easily besets us. Father, I pray that we would look in anticipation as the Old Testament prophets did, so now we must look in anticipation for you to come again. Lord, I pray for those who are here who have not trusted Christ, those who have not bow the knee of their heart to you, that you would open their eyes to this great and glorious truth. For our King has come. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask the